Lord, we submit ourselves to the authority of your word in this moment. We pray, God, that you would speak through your word, for we, your people, are listening. Give us ears to hear. Open our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This summer, we have been on a journey through the book of Genesis. Sermon series has been a bit different than what we uh, normally do in that we've tried to provide more of an overview of the book of Genesis by highlighting some of the major themes and really trying to understand how Genesis uh, fits in the overall story of the Bible. So rather than looking at every single verse deeply, we've tried to provide more of a 40,000-foot view to understand the forest rather than every single tree. We've looked at the story of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, looked at Noah and Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob last week. And we've learned that there are these intentional themes that connect each of these characters and each of these micro stories, these themes of covenants and the promised seed, the promised offspring, theme of the new Eden, theme of a disharmony because of sin, even the theme of God's rescuing and sovereign power. And with these themes, we've seen the redemptive pattern unfold throughout the book of Genesis, and then we've even applied that through the rest of Scripture. And Joel did an amazing job laying out this sermon series for us, kind of serving us in that way. And it's really been unbelievable when you think about all that we've seen through the book of Genesis. I think it's been helpful because we tend to view some of these characters and stories as if they're independent or isolated from one another. Or we might even just reduce them to these great moral lessons for us personally. And yet what this sermon series has taught us is that yes, they're, they're connected and they even build upon one another. And what links them together is the unfolding redemptive plan of God. Now, this morning, we come to the conclusion of this sermon series by looking at the story of Joseph. Uh, there's been uh, more ink dedicated to Joseph in Genesis more than any other character throughout this book. Chapters 37 through 50 are pretty much entirely focused only on him. Now, that's surprising because of the significance of the other characters throughout Genesis. I mean, you've got Adam and Eve, uh, you've got Noah, you've got the patriarchs with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet they don't get the kind of attention that Joseph gets. What's more is the seemingly insignificant role that Joseph plays throughout the rest of Scripture. He's almost never mentioned again. And so it raises the question, why so much attention on Joseph? Why the prominent role here in the first book of the Bible? And how do we make sense of his story? Sometimes when we think about the story of Joseph, I know I've done this many times, we can reduce his story, these chapters here, to merely illustrate the mysterious relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Right? We think, man, how in the world uh, does God's uh, uh, preordained will intersect with our real choices? And we think to ourselves, well, let's look at Joseph. Joseph's a great example of that. He's a perfect illustration and then we almost exclusively look at one verse, Genesis 50, verse 20, which says what you meant for evil, talking to his brothers, God meant 
for good. And they go, oh, that's the story of Joseph. Now, while that's helpful and beneficial, and we can understand Joseph's story in light of that one verse. I mean, God's sovereignty is a huge theme in Genesis 37 through 50. Joseph himself interprets his life through the lens of God's sovereignty, according to chapter 45, verses 1 through 9. However, reducing Joseph's story to merely this personal illustration of the intersection between divine sovereignty and man's responsibility and what that means personally for me, I think that misses the greater contribution that Joseph's story provides in the overall narrative of Genesis and the rest of the Bible. That God's sovereignty plays such a huge role in Genesis 37 through 50 because Moses, the author of Genesis, is trying to convince us that we have a God who is a promise-keeping God. That what he says he will do and you can trust in him. Joseph is really just another example of several examples throughout the Bible where God puts himself in an impossible situation and yet finds a way to keep his covenant promises. And Joseph's story is really about how God's providence secures God's promises. Now, in order for us to see that, we need to understand the key moments in Joseph's life spelled out in chapters 37 through 50. So I have the impossible task of highlighting each of these chapters quickly here uh, because we need to kind of understand his life in order to understand the main point. So let's begin. Chapter 37, uh, this is where it all begins for Joseph. We learn some very important things that shape the entire narrative. Joseph's father, who is Jacob, who we saw last week, married Leah and Rachel, but loved Rachel uh, way more. He favored her, and, and Jacob has these 12 sons, but only two of them came from Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. She actually died giving birth to Benjamin. Now, he also favored Joseph, likely because he favored Rachel, his mother, and this is known by verse 4 of chapter 37. It's just kind of a known thing, his favoritism. In fact, Jacob gave Joseph this special robe of many colors, and his brothers despised him because of this. What's more is that Joseph has these two incredible dreams by God. And these dreams are basically predicting a moment in the future in which all of Joseph's brothers and Joseph's father, Jacob, are going to bow down to Joseph. But Joseph has the audacity to share that with his brothers and with his father. And so his brothers hate him all the more. Their hate for Joseph kind of peaks at this point in which they devise a plan to get rid of him. They throw him down in this pit, basically leaving him for dead. But then some traders come by and they think, oh, we can actually make money off Joseph. And so they trade him in in exchange for 20 shekels of silver. They then lie to their father Jacob about what happened to Joseph, bringing the, his colorful robe that was drenched in animal's blood, implying that an animal had killed him. Jacob is wrecked by this. He's devastated. And we find Joseph, who's now in Egypt, sold as a slave for Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. Then you get to chapter 38, 
And chapter 38 feels very much like it's, it's not supposed to be there. It doesn't mention Joseph. It's solely focused on Judah, uh, one of Joseph's brothers. And really, it's a low point in Judah's life. He has this despicable act with his daughter-in-law. We're wondering, how does this all fit in the narrative? We'll return to that in a moment. Chapter 39, we see another difficult episode for Joseph. If you didn't think it could get any worse, being sold as a slave in a foreign land, likely never seeing his family ever again, he's now falsely accused by his powerful boss's wife of a horrific act. This is stunning because Joseph was innocent. And what we find in the story is that Joseph was just being faithful, being faithful to his boss, Potiphar. In fact, he resisted several temptations, several seductions by Potiphar's wife. But because Potiphar accused him of something that he never did, uh, Joseph is now thrown into prison. And he's there for years. Chapter 40 gives us a glimpse into the life in prison where uh, we see Joseph develop these two friendships, one with Pharaoh's baker and the other with Pharaoh's cupbearer. And we learn that there's another set of dreams. Joseph had the first set. Now uh, the cupbearer has a dream and the baker has a dream and they can't interpret. They don't know what it means, but Joseph can and Joseph does. And he shares that with them. He tells the cupbearer, basically, you're going to get reinstated. This is going to go very well for you. But to the baker, this is not going to end well for you. You're going to end in death. And so that's exactly what happens but the cupbearer was supposed to remember Joseph and kind of save him from prison. And yet, the cupbearer forgets about Joseph. He's now rotting in a prison for a crime that he did not commit. Chapter 41, this is somewhat of a turning point in Joseph's life because a few years had passed and Joseph is still in prison, but this time it's Pharaoh who's having issues with dreams. He has two dreams. This is the third and last set of dreams. Even though Pharaoh's the most powerful person in the world, he can't explain these dreams. And so the cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph. Hey, I've got a guy uh, who can interpret dreams. We all need a guy like that. And they go and they get Joseph and they take him out of prison. And he successfully explains these dreams. These dreams are really important for the story, really, of Genesis because what the dreams meant is that there would be seven years of prosperity, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. But then Joseph wisely recommends to Pharaoh, hey, because this is going to happen, you need to use the seven years of plenty and save up, store up what you can in order to survive the famine and also so that people are going to come to you and they're going to need food and you're going to grow your empire and get even more rich. Pharaoh loved this. In fact, he loved it so much that he makes Joseph the second most powerful person in the world. Unbelievable kind of turn in the story. These seven years, plenty followed by seven years of famine is exactly what happened. And we find Joseph, according to chapter 41, verse 57, is blessing the whole earth in providing food. See, the famine hit just about everybody including his old family, Jacob and his brothers. And so Jacob tells his brothers, hey, go get food in Egypt. And so you come to chapter 42, and Joseph's brothers come to Egypt where Joseph is. Now, 
a lot happens in chapters 42 through 50. There's all kinds of drama and emotion and, and reconciliation. It's, it's unbelievable. But the crux of it is, is that Joseph and his brothers finally meet again. They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And at first, he tests his brothers to kind of see if they're honest, to see maybe if they've grown. And then he provides food for them. And then he discloses his real identity. This is like a a crazy moment in the story. They, they, they almost don't even recognize him. But then they do, they kind of have that moment, and he tells them, hey, bring dad, bring everybody, Jacob, bring everybody back here to Egypt. I'm gonna provide for you incredible land. And that's what happens. Jacob and Joseph have this moment, very emotional moment of being reunited. And for years, things are pretty good. And then Jacob dies. But before Jacob dies, he blesses the 12 sons who are uh, eventually, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. He also makes Joseph promise, hey, when I die, bury me back in the promised land where my forefathers are. Okay? It's, it's just amazing. And even at the end of chapter 50, you have this powerful moment of solidifying the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers where forgiveness is extended. <laughs> Now, if, if you've read this story before, it kind of loses like the power behind it because you know what's going to happen. But if you like kind of think about Joseph and the story as if you're reading and hearing it for the first time, it's unbelievable. Like I tried to do that as I sat down and read 37 through 50, like just trying to pretend if I've never read this story before. I mean, it's truly a story of going from rags to riches. Like just imagine being Joseph for a moment. You're in this family you're the favorite son, but you're also hated by your brothers, hated to the point where they want you dead. They, they basically, you know, kind of um, submit themselves to just selling you off into slavery. You're in this foreign land, no more mommy and daddy again, no more of your hometown, your home, your bed, none of your possessions. You're now a slave. And then it gets worse. Like after he tried to kind of make lemonade out of lemons, by being faithful, he gets falsely accused, thrown into prison. So you've got 13 years from becoming a slave to leaving prison. 13 years of perhaps feeling maybe forgotten by the Lord, going through all of those emotions that you and I would go through. And then God moves. God provides this opportunity where Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in the world. It's a crazy story, like when you think about it from afresh. But let's get one thing straight this morning. The main point of this story is not uh, supplying for us this plan of how to go from rags to riches. This is not a story about, hey, if you trust in the Lord during hardship, then God is going to reward you and exalt you in a place of prosperity and give you these great physical blessings of wealth and power and prosperity. And sometimes you'll hear the story kind of of Joseph portrayed that way, or where it's basically portrayed this way. Hey, you feel despised by people close to you? You feel mistreated? You feel misunderstood? You've been falsely accused? Hey, just trust in the Lord and he's going to reward you by giving you these great physical blessings of comfort and wealth and power. 
right? Just trust the Lord and he's gonna give you your best life now. That's not the main point of the story. There's actually something much bigger going on, something that's actually even more jaw-dropping. And I think the key here, the insight, is found in Genesis chapter 50. Here, Genesis 50, verses 18 through 21, I think ties everything together, not just Joseph's story, but these verses tie the whole story of Genesis together. Genesis 50, verses 18 through 21. This is kind of the the summary statement, if you will, of Joseph and the story of Genesis. Listen to it again. It says, his brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, for I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Did you catch it there? These verses provide insight into what's happening in the story of Genesis and Joseph. Joseph is basically saying, hey, look, I know all kinds of evil was done to me. I was betrayed. There's all this hatred and and suffering and confusion that I went through. But God's sovereign power bent all of that evil, and he turned it and used it for his good purposes. And we hear that, and yes, there's this powerful theological truth that we should and can apply to our lives individually and personally. Yes and amen. But that's not exactly the main thrust of that passage. That Joseph is saying that God used all this evil for good. But what good is he referring to here? Is he talking about wealth? Is he talking about prominence and power and fame? Is that why God rescued him? No, look at verse 20. God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's he saying here? Joseph is saying, all of this happened so that God would elevate me to this position of authority in order to save the thousands and perhaps even millions of people due to the wise planning during the famine. But included in that, and more specifically, Joseph is referring to the promised seed, the promised offspring from his covenant family line that is kept alive so that God's promises can be preserved. You remember the promised seed? Remember Genesis 3.15, the significant promise that kind of anchors the whole Bible, that after Adam and Eve sinned, God's making this promise to Adam and Eve, hey, there's gonna be coming a future offspring, a future seed that will crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And he's going to restore basically all things. And so with every generation that comes, every person that's born here on out, there's this anticipation. There's this longing. Is this the promised seed? Is this the promised offspring that's going to restore all things? Is it Noah? Nope, it's not Noah. Is it Abraham? Nope, it's not Abraham. Is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? And with each person born, there's this anticipation and hope, but then there are flaws and failures 
that move us on. But with each generation that's born, God is preserving his promises. And in fact, in chapter 45, verses 7 and 8, there's this conversation that Joseph has with his brothers where he gets way more specific about the purpose that God had for his life. He says this, he says, talking to his brothers, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. <laughs> Did you catch it there? This is the reason why God did this work in Joseph's life is to keep this remnant alive. Who's the remnant? The remnant here, the small group of people that was preserved so that the promised offspring would eventually come, that remnant was Joseph's brothers, the future 12 tribes of Israel, the very men who wanted to kill Joseph. And yet Joseph is saying, God did all this in order to save you guys. <laughs> it's unbelievable here. And the, the reason why that's so important as we connect it to the overall story of Scripture is that several hundred years from this moment, there would be one who is born from the line of Judah. Not Joseph, Judah, one of Joseph, Joseph's brothers. Remember chapter 38? dedicated fully to Judah and really a low moment for him, showing us that he's not the one? Well, several hundred years from this moment, there would be one who would come from the line of Judah who is known as the greatest king in Israel's history, King David. And we know from several hundred years from David, there would be one from the line of David, also the line of Judah, who would be the Messiah, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, who's born in order to save his people from their sins. See, the story about Joseph is not actually about Joseph. The story is about God preserving his promises, keeping the promised seed kept alive through the line of Judah and doing that in supernatural ways through Joseph. See, remember all these threats to God's promises that are in Joseph's story. The, the family division and the violent scream that they were actually a seed of the serpent and not of Eve. Uh, Joseph being a slave in a foreign land, far from the promised land. Joseph's in the wrong land and he's in the wrong family. Joseph is falsely accused. He's thrown into prison as if he's forgotten by God. All his promises may be thrown out. You've got the global famine endangering the entire covenant line of Jacob. All of these threats, and yet we see God's sovereign power preserve his promises. For one, Yahweh blesses the nations like he promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, by using Joseph to bless the entire earth during the famine with food. You see, another promise fulfilled or partially fulfilled where he uses Joseph uh, to help multiply Abraham's seed, as promised in chapter 15, verse 5, because Genesis 47, verse 27, we read that Abraham's seed is fruitful and multiplied greatly. Well, even more, we see the possession of the promised land still intact, even after they move to Egypt, their possession of the land is preserved. 
See, another promise from Genesis 12 where their name is made great among the whole earth per Joseph's prominent position. See, all these promises, they're preserved or they're partially fulfilled. And it shows us two amazing things. Number one, our God is a promise-keeping God. And secondly, our God is a rescuer. Again, this is not about a plan to go from rags to riches. This is a story about God fulfilling his promises, that the covenant, his promises, they are secure because they are in the hands of a sovereign God who can orchestrate all things, including evil things, and use them for his good purposes. See, through Joseph, God is reversing the curse. He's fulfilling these promises because God is a rescuer. God rescued Joseph from prison. God rescued Noah from the flood. God rescued Abraham and Sarah from barrenness. God rescued Jacob from Esau who wanted to kill him. God rescued Jacob and his family and the earth from this great famine. This is what God does. God is a rescuer. And if you're a Christian this morning, God has done the same thing in your own life. God has rescued you, which implies you needed to be rescued. Rescued from what? Rescued from your own sin. Rescued from eternal punishment and eternal separation from God. God has rescued you because of Jesus. He made a way when there was no way. See, Joseph's story is not just this last item in Genesis, but Joseph's story is the resolution of the entire story in Genesis. We've been on this journey throughout Genesis of going from hatred to forgiveness, uh, from famine to feast, from promise to fulfillment. But the, the thrust of this book, and where I want to go before we close, is that this book actually calls us to action today. That the purpose of this is not just to understand the overall story of the Bible and where Genesis fits in, although it's so helpful. The overall point of this is not just to marvel at all of these things, but this book calls us and moves us towards applying what we know to be true in this book. And so I have the privilege of kind of landing the point of this series by sharing what I think are three action steps for us in light of what we've seen in, in Genesis and in the story of Joseph. Here's the first one here. I think Genesis in the story of Joseph calls us to trust in our promise-keeping God. You can sum up the whole book with that statement there. And what I mean by this is not that if you trust in God, you're going to know exactly what he is doing in your life. That's not always a promise. In fact, you're going to go through circumstances that feel confusing to you, that feel disorienting, and yet you can still trust in God. Like just because you're walking with the Lord, just because you trust in him, does not mean all the lights are turned on and you know all that he's doing in your life. No, very often in the Christian life, what it means to trust in the Lord is that you're in the dark. You don't know what he's doing. You don't necessarily even know the next step. But trusting in God, what faith is, 
is being at peace, even in dark times, even in confusing times, because God is with you. That you're not promised clarity. You're not promised knowledge of the future. You're promised the presence of God. And look, sometimes, and if we were really honest, we can almost idolize clarity. We can almost, if I could put it this way, use God as a means to getting clarity. Where we'll trust in God, but as long as he tells me exactly what to do next. And that's not promised. (laughs) Look at all these characters in Genesis. All of them have these moments where they're in the dark. Abraham, hey, Abraham, move your whole family to a land. I'm not even gonna tell you where you're gonna go. He's in the dark. And yet he trusts in God. It's worth it to Abraham. Joseph, he's in the dark, thrown in that pit. Lord, what are you doing? Sold as a slave. God, what are you doing? He's he's in prison, rotting for years. God, what are you doing? He's in the dark. And yet he trusts in the Lord because it is worth it. It's worth trusting in him. I mean, even in these confusing times, just think about Joseph's life. If Go to the very beginning. If Joseph's family wasn't so dysfunctional, his brothers would never have sold him as a slave. If Joseph's brothers never sold him as a slave, then Joseph would never have gone to Egypt. If he never went to Egypt, he never would have been sold to Potiphar. If Joseph was never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife would never have falsely accused him. If Joseph was never falsely accused, then he would never have been put in prison. If Joseph was never put in prison, he would never have met Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer. If he never met the baker and cupbearer, he would never have interpreted their dreams. If he never interpreted their dreams, he would never have interpreted Pharaoh's dream. If he never interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, he never would have become second in command. If Joseph never became second in command, he never would have wisely prepared for the terrible famine that came. If Joseph never wisely prepared for that famine, then his family back in Canaan would have died in the famine. If Joseph's family back in Canaan died, then the Messiah would never have come. If the Messiah did not come forth, then Jesus never would have came. And if Jesus never came, then all of us are dead in our sins without hope in this world. And in all of those moments, Joseph's in the dark. No idea what God is doing and what he is up to. And if Joseph would have missed all that the Lord had for him, if he demanded clarity before obedience. And that's what some of us do with the Lord. Say, yes, God, I will trust you. I will follow you. I'll be obedient. But you got to tell me how this is going to play out. If I take this step of faith, you got to assure me that I'm going to know every step along the way. You're not guaranteed that. And seeing how God is faithful in those moments, how he kept his promises through Joseph, this should move us. This should, it should do something within our own hearts where we think, man, if God did not break his word then, God will never break his word now. That our God is a promise-keeping God. And it should move you from, from saying, I can trust in God, to I do trust in God, to I trust in God always. I can because of his track record, 
I do because I'm in the presence to I will trust him no matter what. And that's faith. That's what it means to trust in our promise-keeping God. And so I ask you this morning, is, is there something in your life that you're, that you're not entrusting the Lord with? Is there something where you're demanding clarity before obedience? Where you're walking by sight instead of by faith that you need to renew your trust in the Lord with? It's a big takeaway in this book. Well, here, here's the second application point is to seek refuge in the one who is with you. And the one who is with you. I love this description of Joseph. This is from a commentator I read this week. He described Joseph this way, that Joseph was loved and he was hated. He was favored and abused. He was tempted and trusted. He was exalted and abased. Yet at no point in the 110-year life of Joseph did he ever seem to get his eyes off God or cease to trust in him. Adversity did not harden his character. Prosperity did not ruin him. He was the same in private as in public. He was truly a great man. That's so true. He was. And yet the question is, why? Why was he so faithful to the Lord? Joseph made his refuge in God because Joseph was utterly convinced that God was with him. And look, I, I know that my assignment is to stay up here at the 40,000 foot level, but man, I know what some of you and perhaps many of you are walking through right now, and I can't stay up here. Like I know that many of you are walking through trials right now that feel just all-encompassing. That you walk even into this room and you're almost physically weighed down because of the burdens in your life. And I know that. And so here's the word that I have for you this morning. God is with you. Simple, isn't it? But it'll transform your life. The living God is with you. If I could whisper in your ear, in a, in a not, not in a creepy way, I would try to convince you, God has not forgotten you. And that what God wants is for you to value and to desire his presence over comfort and clarity. For you to trust in the Lord, for you to crave his presence so much that you would say alongside the psalmist in Psalm 16, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. That at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That God is with you and that his presence is there beside you. I mean, look at Joseph. Joseph, as a slave to Potiphar, we're told in chapter 39, verse two, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a, a successful man in the house of his Egyptian master. When Joseph was thrown into prison, we're told in verse 21 of chapter 39, 
but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So you've got the two lowest moments in Joseph's life and he's assured and we're reminded that the living God was with Joseph, that he wasn't forgotten by God, that yes, he was forgotten by his brothers, but God did not forget him. That yes, he was forgotten by the cupbearer who was supposed to remember him and save him, and yet he was not forgotten by God Almighty. That God was with Joseph, he was for Joseph, and he was comforting Joseph in his darkest moments. And so question, for those of you who are walking through hardship right now, what makes you think that God has forgotten you? What makes you think that God is not with you? You might say, well, God's just not at work in my life like he used to be. Or you might point to difficult hardship and circumstances. And I would say, look at Joseph. Look at countless characters in the Bible. The, the lowest moments in Joseph's life. These circumstances that are screaming to him, God's forgotten you. God's no longer with you. Are the exact moments we are reassured that the presence of God Almighty was there with Joseph. And so could it be that in your own life, the noise of your challenging circumstances are drowning out the comforting presence of God right now? Is that why you feel forgotten? And if that's the case, let me, let me remind you with 100% clarity, God's with you. God's actually with you in greater ways than when he was with Joseph because you have the indwelling power and presence of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, living in you. The living God is living and indwelling within you permanently. And so even though you don't feel like God is with you, and look, I know how powerful those circumstances can be, how powerful those voices are. Look, rest assured that you are not alone, that the all-sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God is with you. And blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Rest in God. He's with you. Well, this leads us to our third and last application we see in Joseph's life here. It's to worship the true and greater Joseph, who is Jesus. I wish I could spend more time on what a typology is, but <clears throat> Joseph is a type of Christ, meaning Joseph is prefiguring and foreshadowing these installments in a pattern that will culminate in the one who is Jesus, who will come and finally and fully bring God's promises to pass. Yeah, I know it's a lot here, and don't have time to unpack all that, but in short, like there's so many similarities between Joseph and Jesus that you're supposed to think, man, he reminds me of somebody. Like even the apparent sinlessness of Joseph, which we know biblically that's not true, Romans 3.10, everyone's a sinner. 
But in Genesis 37 through 50, there's no real account of Joseph kind of sinning, which is supposed to think, man, he reminds me of somebody. He's pointing me forward to somebody. In fact, there's a ton of other similarities. For, for example, like Joseph, Jesus was the beloved son of the father who was also rejected by his people and explicitly rejected by his brothers. That like Joseph, Jesus left his exalted status and became a servant. Like Joseph, Jesus was falsely accused and delivered over to death. Like Joseph, who was freed from prison, Jesus also was freed from the prison of death through the power of God in the resurrection. And like Joseph, Jesus was delivered in order to save his people. And like Joseph, Jesus was exalted to the highest place of authority and power. There's all kinds of other similarities. Both Jesus and Joseph were both sold for silver, stripped of their clothing, bound, condemned with two other criminals, one that led to life, one the other led to death. Joseph is a, is a type of Christ that is pointing us to Jesus. And so we return to that question in the introduction. Why does Moses spend so much time on Joseph? Well, it's to show us that God does the impossible. Saves, he saves his people through a seemingly insignificant Hebrew. And that is to point us forward to Jesus. That as we read Joseph, it anticipates someone who is greater than Joseph, who would come and fully and finally reverse the curse and fulfill God's promises in full. And we know that the greater Joseph has come. At 2,000 years ago, Jesus, after living a sinless, perfect life, makes a substitutionary atonement. He gets up on a cross and he dies in the place of sinners. And then three days later, God raised him to life. And through his resurrection, he fulfills Genesis 3.15 by crushing the head of the serpent, Satan, once and for all. That he breaks the power of sin and he defeats the grave once and for all. You guys awake this morning? That's good news. That's amazing news that the greater Joseph has come and his name is is Jesus. And what we've seen throughout Genesis is that Jesus is the second and perfect Adam. He's the greater Noah. He's the greater Abraham, the greater Isaac, the greater Jacob. He's the greater Joseph. Jesus is the promised seed, the anticipated Messiah, the exalted King of Kings, and the true hero and rescuer of God's people who has saved us from our sins. That's the point of Genesis. It's the gospel in the beginning where we see Jesus fulfill all of these things. It's really the story of glory through suffering, exaltation through humiliation. It's the story of the cross and the crown pointing us to Jesus and God's redemptive plan centered and fulfilled in him. You see Jesus in Genesis? you worship him? Do you trust in him? Let's pray together. Oh God, we do praise you and we thank you for the endless riches that are found in your word. 
God, there is so much in this book. 66 books, one story centered on one person, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you, oh God, for the clarity that we have in this book. Thank you for not leaving us completely in the dark, but giving us your presence, giving us your word. God, we want to be a faithful people. We want to be a people who trust in you no matter what. We want to be a people who find our refuge in you by clinging to our, our hope who's in Jesus. Help us to be that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.